On this episode of Popscast, Urbana Pops Orchestra's principal bassoonist talks to us about the bassoon and its stunning solo capabilities. We also talk about his recital this month at the Urbana Free Library. Popscast is made possible by the Urbana Pops Orchestra and the Community Center for the Arts in Urbana, Illinois. Engaging in community arts discussions and issues in Illinois and around the world, this is Popscast. I'm Daniel Sutherland, Principal Conductor of the Urbana Pops Orchestra. Welcome to another episode of Popscast. Today we have with us an extraordinarily talented musician and a close personal friend. Chris Raymond has been playing bassoon for 11 years, holds a degree in bassoon performance from Millican University in Decatur, Illinois. He's now a graduate assistant at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign and performs with many performing ensembles, including our very own Urbana Pops Orchestra. And Chris, I assume your favorite ensemble to perform with is the Urbana Pops Orchestra. Absolutely. Yep. It sure is, Daniel. When did you start playing with us? It was when we did our Magical Tales concert. That was, yeah, that was the first concert. That was the uh, summer of 2012, yeah. I remember. Which and, was uh, a, yeah, it was a big concert actually for you as a principal bassoonist it, because we, it was, um, we did Sources, Sources Apprentice. Sources Apprentice, yeah. yep. That so. was a lot of fun. It, it was a, it was a really big challenge for us as well. Um, so when did you start playing bassoon was it your first instrument or did were you did you play something else and then you switched no i it wasn't my first instrument um my first instrument was the oboe originally which so it's like a little um, bassoon kind of in a lot of ways um so when i was in fifth grade um luckily i grew up with a wonderful music program and i had the opportunity to start on oboe which is kind of funny because you know all my friends would be like oh i'm just gonna be a percussionist like Mm -hmm. all my friends well i ended up picking the oboe because i saw it sitting there and i'm like oh what is that so I played that for through middle school, and then the summer going into my eighth grade year, um, my music teacher uh, at the time at the middle school, they had bassoons there that just weren't being used. So he approached me and said, hey, uh, there's three oboes in the band, so if you're interested, would you, would you care to try the bassoon? And I'm like, well... Like everyone else, I asked, what's a bassoon? Mm-hmm. So that led to... I don't um, even know if I'm clear on what a bassoon is. It's, that's a good thing we're making a podcast yeah. for it then, because I think there's a lot of clarification that needs to go out there. Um, so a combination of, you know, mystery, you know, what the heck is this thing, combined with, you know, all the peer pressure immediately saying, oh, wow, Chris, you need to go play this bassoon. Like, this sounds really cool. I ended up picking it up over the summer. I kind of practiced on my own for the first couple years, and eventually it wasn't until... Uh, my solo and ensemble year, my sophomore year of high school, a judge gave me a two rating, oh. and I was furious. Yeah, I wanted to find out why, and he became my first private lesson teacher. Oh no, kidding! Because yeah, I went up to him because he was an, he's an actual bassoonist, and I went up to him and I said, "Hey, you know, um, can I meet with you and you know t- talk about it?" And yeah, one thing led to another. He ended up becoming my teacher all through the rest of high school. So sure. Um, so when did you decide that it was what you wanted to do? When did you fall in love with it? <sighs> I kind of like the idea of how like unknown this r- instrument is, and mm-hmm. you know that kind of that kind of bizarreness was really cool um, to explore for myself. But um, originally, I wanted to be a music ed major and become a, a band director, and that first all kind of came together when I was a freshman or sophomore in high school. Uh, we took a field trip to go see the Chicago Symphony, and they happened to have played that night Symphony Fantastic mm-hmm. by Berlioz. And of course, there's these big sections in the piece that have big bassoon solis. And it's really inspiring. And it was just one of the most memorable performances mm-hmm. I can ever think of, um, which led me to be like, you know, I want to really take this seriously. But 
Um, you know, ever since I began band, I always loved playing music and whether it was the oboe, I also played like saxophone and drums on the mm-hmm. side for fun. But, um, yeah, when I picked up the bassoon and then saw these incredible performance, that's when I really, you know, that's when I really started taking this seriously mm-hmm. and wanted to make something of it. So was there, were there any particular musicians, particularly bassoonists that inspired you when you were younger? Oh, people you listened to? Absolutely. My first CD I got when I was about... 15 or 16 because you know not many young people will listen to their own instrument and listen to professionals play it for fun well Mm -hmm. that was around the time I actually started doing that and one of the first CDs I have and I still listen to it now and again is uh, a CD by Judith LeClaire she's the principal bassoonist of the New York Philharmonic she's Mm -hmm. been there for at least 30 years pretty good pretty Um, good band yeah she went to Eastman then joined the New York Mm -hmm. Phil so that CD was so moving and I wanted to imitate her sound so badly because the way they recorded it and everything, it just resonated beautifully with the hall and the way she used her vibrato and everything. It was gorgeous. And mm-hmm. even to this day, I'm like, her bassoon playing is immaculate. It is, it is pristine and, and how well she does it. And no wonder she's at the top. Sure. <laughs> so she's definitely uh, a bassoon hero of yours then. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, so amongst many now. So... Our listeners can't see, but I'm, we're looking at these these two giant bassoons, a very tall piece of stick, it looks like. Absolutely. So so tell us a little bit about it. Okay. Well, the bassoon, as you know, is the lowest of the woodwind family, uh, not counting the contra bassoon. Um, it is also a double reed instrument. Which is so. a really, really big oboe. <laughs> I mean, not quite, because most people blow out of like the top end of the instrument, and the sound comes out the bottom, Well, the bassoon works kind of different. So the bassoon itself, when it's all put together, probably from the ground, you're looking at about eh, about four feet in height, mm-hmm. uh, and it's about seven feet of tubing, considering that it's also wrapped starting at the middle, it goes down to the bottom of the instrument, and then back out the top. The instrument luckily disassembles into several pieces, so it actually compacts surprisingly well. Um, but when it's all put together, it's just an annoyance, you know, just trying to get into your seat if, if you have a rehearsal or something. And, you know, and also when you're playing, um, someone earlier this week made a comment, like trying not to hit the person next to you with mm-hmm. it. Yours, uh, it's obviously made of, of some kind of wood. Yes. What is um, yours made of? So the wood on my bassoon is, um, made out of a type of maple that grows out of the mountains in the Yugoslavic area. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is this instrument in particular, mine, is made by a German maker named Bernd Musmann. Um, he produces a few hundred bassoons a year, I believe. Meanwhile, the, um, the other bassoon I have sitting in the room, it's a Fox Renard. It's made out of a, I believe it's either a black or a red maple, which... Mm-hmm. Um, might have come from the U.S. They actually don't disclose where they get their wood from, at least oh. to my knowledge. Um, just It's one of those secrets of the trade kind of thing. Okay. Um, so, But the process to making a bassoon is actually incredible. So say a company like, um, I'll say Musman, for example, um, they get the wood fresh and they, you know, they saw it down basically from the tree itself and they create all the logs that they would use to... Uh, eventually shape all the joints of the instrument well before they do any of that they let it sit and like get all the moisture out and it just it it sits like for at least 10 12 years even more before they even get to it Mm -hmm. yeah so they're they think well in advance and then from there it's about uh, it's about six months of craftsmanship from there from you know from these pieces of wood to finally put it all together and have a functioning instrument. It's about a six-month process, start to finish. 
uh, hence why bassoon is also one of the most expensive instruments on the market, yeah, not counting. What? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I was going to ask about that. Because you, you mentioned two different uh, uh, materials that are used. And I was reading a little bit about uh, the materials used to create student bassoons and how they're they're a lot different than professional model bassoons yeah um like i'll for fox for example they're very well known for their student line instruments very Mm -hmm. good quality um one of the one of the proponents they use is they actually make their bassoons out of polypropylene which is actually very similar to an incredibly hard rubber sure so it's actually very durable um if you're playing outside i wish i owned one because i would just grab that bassoon and take it outside and i could Mm -hmm. play in 90 degrees 50 degrees and i wouldn't worry about my instrument like you know when people start um putting uh, bassoons out on the marching band field we could use you could you could do you could start your own marching band you you could i mean you wouldn't be heard uh (laughs) one of the struggles of being a bassoon player is it's hard to be heard Mm -hmm. we're not the most projecting instrument but i hope to i hope to disprove that with my upcoming recital um probably a fun marching band story and this is someone told me this is why you don't march bassoon is because you know you march with the bassoon and you have the vocal that sticks out and the vocal is made of metal and you got your reed at the end and what had happened was this person had tripped fall mm. forward and the vocal went straight in through their mouth and i'll just leave it at something that for the happens. imagination yeah, yeah sure. something bad happens uh, <laughs> So that's why you don't march bassoon. I mean, I've seen bassoons, like if you like see the Texas competitive marching you know, area, you'll see a lot of bassoons in the pit playing. Mm-hmm. Like, great. But, you know, if you're out moving with bassoon, sure. I think it causes troubles. So different, um, you, there must be a, a cost. You were talking about cost earlier. Um, and obviously, student line instruments with different materials would be a little cheaper. Yes. It's kind of the whole point. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, how much uh, was yours, if you don't mind saying, how much was your, your instrument? Okay, so I play a Burn Moose Mom professional line instrument, and I it is currently worth about, I, I'd say I paid roughly $20,000 for it, mm-hmm. um, which now, mind you, is like just what I said earlier. There's a lot of craftsmanship that goes into it, and there's also, you know, it's a it's not a tough market, but there's only so many people you can appeal to, oh, to sure. you know, yeah. sell these instruments. You know, while 20000 that sounds really terrifying. Now, for me, you know, I'm a professional, trying to be a professional. This is an investment, you know. It's a little, uh, little less than my first yeah, car, yeah. I think. Right, yeah. I'll, uh, my car isn't worth half as much. But uh, <laughs> you get, you know, I, I'll make it back over time. Um, meanwhile, if you're starting out bassoons, you can find probably decent student bassoons, probably between four to five grand, mm-hmm. I would say, is a good... You know, it would be a great bassoon for your starting student. Now, there are bassoons for sale that are like ten, fifteen hundred dollars $1,500. I've seen them in action, and they, they stink. Sure. They're just not – they don't do it justice. So how did this monstrosity make it into the world of orchestral music? Oh, okay. So, all right. Let's, let's pull it back about 400 years. So – the predecessor to the bassoon is an instrument called the dulcian. Um, also, in other parts of Europe, it was called the kirtle. And it was a basically, it was a much smaller instrument in terms of length. And it pretty much just had, it drilled holes and then maybe one or two keys on the instrument itself. Mm-hmm. Over time, through the 18th century, going into the 19th century, um, the Baroque bassoon which is a, a very uh, well-known period instrument that's played in a lot of ensembles, we'll, we'll start elaborating more on how many keys there are on the instrument and 
Um, it progressed throughout the century. So, I mean, a lot of them are just kind of based on, oh, what date they were, what maker made them. Mm-hmm. Um, but by the time you got into the 19th century, then we started getting into more of the modern bassoon today. So, mm-hmm. so in the early to mid-19th century, um, probably the, the inventor, I shouldn't say probably, the inventor of the modern bassoon, um, his name is Karl Amenrader. He's a German maker. Um, he actually worked closely with a lot of people, such as Adolf Sachs, um, etc. And he's credited with developing. Yeah, I'm sure you know <laughs> that guy very well. Uh, he's credited with inventing the modern bassoon, mm-hmm. um, the way you kind of see it now, my, minus several keys. It was later in the century where the bassoon kind of diverged into two directions. So um, one common name you'll find in the bassoon world is the name Heckel. Um, they are known for taking, you know, this bassoon, working with Almondrader even, and turning out tons of bassoons, you know, for the world. And they still do to this day. They're the oldest bassoon maker mm-hmm. currently. The other direction it went was actually with the instrument maker Buffet, uh, very well known for making clarinets sure. nowadays. They still produce um, what is called the French bassoon, which is actually a different keywork layout. And that was actually designed more or less by um, a French bassoonist who was at the Paris Conservatory. His name was Eugène Jeancourt. He developed this great French bassoon system that's still used to this day. The key work there hasn't really updated since then. We're Mm -hmm. talking the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. You're not going to find those in American orchestras nowadays. You might have 50 years ago. But today, um, you're not really going to see them. They're played predominantly only in France. The rest of the world, it's going to be a, um, what this is, the German bassoon, mm-hmm. which is what's standard. So is it a, is it a, a large le- learning curve to, to say you played both, to, to um, learn two different A little bit. Um, I, sh- I actually own one, and I should have brought it just to kind of show the comparison, mm-hmm. at least to you, and we probably going to take a picture of it. Um, but yeah, the thumb layout's a little bit different, and um, a lot of the keys for the fingers have different functions. Okay. So um, what would normally be for like your left hand pinky would do something different on French bassoon. But one big thing I should totally mention is that the design for a French bassoon is actually much more narrow. The bore of the instrument is actually considerably smaller, and because of it, it actually produces a little bit more of a nasally sound. Sure. Um, it's probably a bit quieter too. I would, it is. Yeah. yeah. Um, actually. Uh, Berlioz, I said I mentioned Symphony Fantastique earlier about seeing them live. Well, the reason Berlioz orchestrated four bassoons, for example, is because the French bassoon at the time was a very soft instrument. Sure. He could not project, so he wrote for four of them. Or his uh, Berlioz's Requiem, there's eight bassoon parts. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, sure. Yeah, it just needs to sing, you know. So, so um, it's obviously a, a stunning solo instrument. Um, it, it's a really gorgeous solo sound. When did, when did composers start to litter in or i guess i should ask when when did this when did the solo rep for the bassoon start to grow okay so probably the earliest work i think that's commonly played for the bassoon today was actually a a set of sonatas written for the dulcian this was by um giovanni bertoli i believe is his name mm-hmm. um and at this time we're talking 17th century so this was this was for the court. This is for royalty. They're writing these works for because that's that was the that was the thing back then. A lot of the literature now um, for bassoon probably starts as early as Antonio Vivaldi. Now Vivaldi is a broke composer who lived in Italy his whole life, and he worked for an orphanage that was comprised entirely of women. And these girls would learn music of all kinds, and some of them would study the bassoon. 
and he would actually write all of these bassoon concerti for them to perform mm. to get money. So, and that's how they made their living. And actually, uh, Vivaldi wrote, I believe, 38 bassoon concertos, second only to the several hundred violin concerto he wrote. Mm -hmm. So the second amount he ever wrote was for the bassoon. Um, And we pull a lot of our Baroque stuff from there. Now, there's some other composers here and there that wrote some great stuff for the bassoon. Another notable composer, uh, Telemann, Mm -hmm. uh, definitely. um, Who's on your program. It it will be on my program, and we'll, we'll definitely talk about that here in a little bit. And then from there, you get to Johann Christian Bach wrote some good stuff, and then eventually hit the first pinnacle, which is Mozart, mm-hmm. um, his famous bassoon concerto. The first ever wind concerto he ever wrote mm-hmm. was the bassoon concerto. I mean, from there, you definitely, um, it kind of diverges just with the instruments themselves. So the German, there's a lot of German composers who wrote in the 18th, 19th century, along with French music that also began to develop uh, 19th going into the 20th century. Um, and we have... So we have two excellent genres we can definitely pull from. And then, you know, as we get around into the 21st century, American composers become much more relevant. And, you know, there's great repertoire to pull from there. And by then, you know. So one of the pieces on your program is written by a, um, a notable contemporary composer who in himself is responsible for some of the growth, at least for, for contemporary rep. And the piece you're, you're playing, Coffee Tango, can you tell me a little bit about that? All right, so Coffee Tango um, is on the end of my program um, just because it's it's a bit of an encore piece. I heard it a few years ago from a Scandinavian composer. His name is Robert Rones. He's still alive. Um, he um, he teaches, I, can't, I believe it's in Sweden is where he, uh, he teaches and performs professionally. And uh, he's also a composer, mm-hmm. um, a composer whose works still aren't um, being played as popularly as, you know, others perhaps but his he's writing a lot and he's definitely contributing to our libraries this piece itself is a lot of fun to play it's actually very cheesy and the writing and the melody of it is a lot of fun Mm -hmm. hopefully i'll be getting to play this a short bit of it here for you here for a second and uh you'll 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 pick up why you know it's not anything you know musically innovative but it's a lot of fun definitely sure yeah let's hear some of it See what I mean? Sure. Um, I'm noticing a, a few things in there that you wouldn't normally hear in your typical Be- Beethoven symphony or maybe a classical piece, and uh, which reminds me, um, you're using a, a variety of techniques in this piece, um, some of which are newer techniques. Obviously, we, we hear a, a, a stunning display of vi- uh, vibrato um, and some different you know, quick grace notes and runs, and you also double tongue a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are, what are the other kind of cool things that you can do from more from the 20th century, things that that would scare people maybe. Oh, sure. So probably the scariest thing bassoon players are very good at doing um, are multiphonics, um, which multiphonics, you're producing multiple pitches at the same time. Mm And um, sometimes it does totally make sense. Sometimes it just sounds Mm -hmm. like complete chaos. And um, there's several of them I know how to do on the instrument. Could you you just like pump one out real quick? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I can do that. 
obviously those those require special fingerings. Yes. Um, how often do you find yourself using techniques like that? Oh, only when I'm looking for that kind of music. Nothing really on my recital is going to have multiphonics in it because, mm-hmm. you know, this is a family-friendly concert. Oh, that's, that's too bad because I, I feel like kids would at least laugh at it. I, I, I would definitely make a note to talk about mm-hmm. it for sure and just, you know, some of the cool things Bassoon's capable of. And um, But like I was saying, you know, if I'm looking for a modern piece, a lot of unaccompanied music or bassoon and track music, for example, mm-hmm. there's a lot of great opportunities there to play multiphonic music. Um, and most of that is just... Composition-wise, it's probably only written in the last 50 years. Sure. And you, you've also got some some other really gorgeous tunes on your uh, recital. Absolutely. Uh, you got some George Gershwin. Yes. Uh, Poor Game Bass, Summertime, which I think I've probably I, I've probably heard performed by uh, several different solo instruments. I've played it on a saxophone. A while ago, we, we had Aaron Rahm as a soloist, and he mm-hmm. played on trumpet. I remember that one. Um, I don't think I've ever heard it on bassoon. No, um, and neither had I until I started playing it. Mm-hmm. Um, I heard it actually, at first, I heard it on a CD um, of a European woman playing bassoon and orchestra, and there was an arrangement of Summertime with bassoon and orchestra, and it sounded gorgeous. It's written in a beautiful, high singing key for the bassoon, and um, the accompaniment is very well done, and there's a lot of elaboration in it. And um, on top of it, um, my sheet music only has the printed melody, so I've improvised on top of it mm-hmm. as well, doing some lot of cool things. Um, speaking of extended technique, I even do a little bit of pitch bending. Oh, no kidding. Um, just to kind of make that cool sure. jazzy effect. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, let's hear some of it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. surprised at how um how much like the human voice the bassoon sounds in its higher range absolutely i think that's probably one of the great things about the bassoon is um i think it's without debate that the instrument that sounds closest to the human voice Mm -hmm. is the bassoon whether it's a nice singing beautiful alto down to a bass Mm -hmm. you know we can do it the best so you've got some paul hindemith on your uh to, to kind of get away from the, you know, the, the very pretty jazzy and bluesy poor game bass. Absolutely. Um, a piece by Hindemith, uh, his bassoon sonata. So tell me a little bit about that one. All right. So um, those of you who may not know, Paul Hindemith is a German composer, um, predominantly in the early to mid 20th century. Um, his bassoon sonata is a part of a bunch of other sonatas he wrote for wind instruments and piano. Um, a really fun fact about Paul Hindemith is that he could play everything he wrote. So he learned all the instruments, and he was able to perform mm-hmm. this bassoon sonata on bassoon. Um, he also wrote an oboe sonata, an English horn sonata, a flute sonata, I believe, a tuba sonata, mm-hmm. um, which they're all in their respective fields. But I really like the bassoon sonata. Um, 
probably Paul Hindemith's most well-known genre of music is writing atonal music, music that doesn't necessarily have a tonal center. You know, if you could if you could listen to a tune and then you could sing do, you can't do that with Paul sure. Hindemith's music because it kind of goes away. Mm-hmm. You kind of lose that sense. But I wanted to put this on the recital because this might not necessarily be the hardest music in the bassoon repertoire, but it definitely has its challenges. And it's also, it's gorgeous. Mm-hmm. It's it's really enjoyable to listen to, even though sometimes you might lose that sense of tonality. It's still, it's beautiful. Is, is there any particular challenge that, that really sticks out at you as something you kind of grappled with? Yes. Um, so practicing this piece, um, for bassoonists out there, you'll realize this too, that this isn't like your typical sonata. You know, most sonatas, it's you think of it as bassoon, with piano accompaniment. Well, Paul Hindemith, I noticed this with all his sonatas, that they're actually treated much more like duets than they would any mm-hmm. other, you know, your typical sonatas out there. So practicing a lot of this, you're you're playing it by yourself and you're thinking, well, this doesn't make much sense. Well, sure. obviously the piano's got the melody, but it's, you know, it balances very well with how much the bassoon is playing. And that's a great thing. And, you know, we're glad to have a great accompanist on board um, to be able to do this. Sure. So. So, Chris, you're also appearing with um, a student of yours who I believe is a high schooler. Yes, that's correct. Um, and I think that's uh, one of the things that we like to talk about a whole bunch with Urbana Pops Orchestra is that we're, we're more than just a, a performing ensemble. We have a, a really strong educational mission. Uh, all of our principal players, including yourself, uh, do very well to, to live up to that standard. What is teaching like for you? Is it, was it like you expected? Um, you know, you hear kind of the that cliche that you you learn as much from your students as you, as, you, uh, as they learn from you. And it's, it, it, however, it ends up being pretty true. Uh, how's it affected your playing, being I, a teacher? Um, it actually, it has done a lot for my own playing. Um, one popular phrase I heard that kind of stuck with me is, to teach is to learn twice. Mm-hmm. And it actually makes quite a difference if you can properly articulate how to articulate, mm-hmm. for example, <laughs> um, or how to form... A proper bassoon embouchure, I mean, you could just do it, but if you can recite how to do it or effectively get someone else to be able to do it properly, then you feel like you actually understand the concept Mm -hmm. a lot. So, yes, um, I have my student, Sydney Forbes. She'll be playing on the recital. She's going to be doing a movement of the Telemann Bassoon Sonata, and I'll actually be playing accompaniment with her. Um, On piano or on bassoon? On bassoon. So just basso continuo kind of thing. Um, she's been a student of mine for just about two years or so now. And I guess what's worth mentioning, um, uh, some, one of the other challenges is communication and just being able to have lessons on a weekly basis. But, um, one thing I'm very proud of Sydney about is she does excellent in school. Um, I believe she got a full ride to DePauw in Indiana where she's going to be studying, I believe, biology or mm-hmm. something in that field. And, um, she's gotten a lot of opportunities recently to go travel with honor societies, go to Europe and things like that, where we had to postpone bassoon for a little bit. And that's mm-hmm. fine because, you know, she's doing other really great things. So if I were to be interested in being a, a bassoon student of yours, which I'm going to be here in just a few minutes, <laughs> what would I do? Where would I go? Okay. So, yeah, I teach bassoon privately and it's is a bit of a plug here. So um, my website, www.raymondbassoon.com. Um, you can go there and find all my information, including on how to get lessons from me. There's a way to contact me, and I also have all my information on starting up bassoon lessons. I travel to students. Students travel to me. Uh, we kind of work that out along with you know how we do payment and how often we do lessons and mm-hmm. things like that. So um, 
I teach bassoonists from beginners. I worked with college level musicians and I've had some of them go off and do great things. Um, students who've played in the IMEA Allstate groups, um, students who went off to college to major music, things like that. So, um, so yeah, once again, if, you know, if you're a bassoonist or if you, a student or um, your child are interested in picking up the bassoon, um, yeah, please feel free to contact me. My website, www.raymondbassoon.com. Now, um, I'm a saxophone player. I've yeah. never once touched, well, I've touched them, but I haven't done much with double reed instruments. And I was hoping maybe if you could give me a little bit of a mini lesson. Absolutely. All right. This is going to be a treat. So I hope you're excited. Okay. So tell me, how do I make a sound on it? Okay. Obviously, it's a, it's a double read, so it's going to take a little bit more air pressure, I, I think. Okay. So just to get things rolling right off the ground, what I want you to do is just grab the read itself. We're okay. just going to play on just the read now. Um, unlike the weird multiphonic sound that bassoon extended technique has, um, the actual ideal sound you want when blowing on just the bassoon read, which we call crowing, is you actually want a multiphonic pitch. So okay. a lot of people will tend to be really tight on the top and bottom and will make this sound. But what you actually want to do is you want to have a nice round armature. Both of your lips are kind of folded in, okay. um, even just a little over your teeth. And you kind of want to imagine there's a golf ball in the back of your mouth just to create an, a big, open, round chamber in the back here. I just think to golf balls are going to have a So the ideal sound you're looking for is something closer to this. So you're taking a lot of the read in. Yeah, um, about two-thirds of the bassoon reed blade are going in my mouth, I would say. That's much better. Oh, yeah. okay. Okay, so that's the... That still that's the, Yeah, I know. Well, but hey, it was, it, was, it, was, it was crowing pretty well. Okay. So that's the ideal feel you want when you are playing the bassoon as okay. well. So go ahead and put the reed back on the vocal. So um, without any keys pressed down or anything, the note you'll produce is an F. So if you just blow with that kind of same embouchure feeling, you'll create an F. Okay. Oh, come on. Louder and should be um, no, no, the pitch was fine. Just um, it sounded like you were leaking maybe a little bit from oh, the atmosphere. Okay. Just try it one more time. <laughs> good. Yeah, that, okay. that, that was pretty good. Awesome. Okay, so you get the idea of it. So sitting with the bassoon, um, you want the bassoon to go across the front of you like so, and then you kind of adjust your vocal and your reed uh, to go straight into your mouth. Okay. And then you shouldn't be working anyway to try to get the bassoon. And yeah, uh, overall your posture looks pretty good. Um, one comment I make to my students is the bell joint here should be completely on the left side of your head. Should be beyond the left side of your head. So I should I should move this a little bit then. Um yeah, if you need to. Okay. No one's gonna know what I'm moving because they can't see me. Right. That's fine. So I look at the pictures. Yeah. No, I think Daniel Daniel's already playing an instrument. He kind of knows where fingers need to go. So, well, it's, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the first uh, the first time I played bassoon, I didn't know which side was the thumb side, which side's the regular side. Um, which I should have mentioned before, the bassoon standard has about 13 thumb keys. So um, it could be so, very... so some of these not thumb keys? No, they're all thumb keys. Oh, well, how many thumb keys are there? 13. I guess you did just say that. I did. I just was distracted <laughs> by how many yeah. thumb keys so, there are. Um, yeah, so the thumb keys are um, important for creating the low half, the, like the bottom half octave of the instrument, and then various accidental notes and things like that. Um, speaking properly in probably the second to third octave, which we call the tenor range, and then um, making high notes come out at the very top. Those are pretty much all the functions of our thumb keys. Okay. So um, I'll play a little, for example. So yeah, we use our thumb for the very low notes. 
um, help some of the tenor notes come out. Um, and then singing the very high notes. We were just talking about this from Stravinsky's Rite yeah, of Spring. Yeah, Rite of Spring. So there you go. You heard, you, heard, you heard the Rite of Spring for all the, for all the requests from the audience. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to teach you just, I believe, five notes. Um, and it's just going to be part of an F major scale. And then we're going to read a little piece here. Okay. So um, the first note I'm going to teach you is a C. So this is the C right below that F we just did before. Okay. So the first key I want you to press down, it's going to be this key here. Okay. Uh, in the left thumb, it's on the bottom. It's called the whisper key. Okay. We use this. It kind of works the exact opposite as an octave key. Um, we press it down to play the low notes. Oh, okay. Rather than press down yeah, the high notes. Yeah, okay, because it covers that little so, there. Um, we also would normally hold that down for F. Just for okay. clarification. Now for C, it's gonna be the first three, it's gonna be the three fingers in your left hand. So that's gonna okay. be a C. So it should sound like this. Go ahead, give it a go. <laughs> okay, so yeah. Okay, so I have to keep my um, fingers away. Yeah, so okay. it's it's nice that you have your crutch there, but yeah, you keep your fingers off. Good. And one common issue that uh, a lot of bassoon players will have is that your hand looks like it's really high up here, like it's really out of the way. So bring your hand down a little bit more. That way your ring finger can cover that tone hole properly. Make sure you're covering it enough there, just like that. Like so, you probably just, there you go. Okay. Good. Try it one more time. Oh, is it lower than I think it? Okay. okay I, I think it is. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's natural. All right. So there you go. So the next note I'm gonna teach you is um, I'm actually gonna teach you A below it, and then we'll get to B here in a second. Okay. Um, I'll explain why. So to add A, so you have C, which is just one, two, three in the whisper key. Okay. I want you to add your first two fingers of your right hand down on covering those tone holes okay. right there. That's going to create an A. Great. Easy enough. All right. Now, instead of B natural, um, just for the sake of the tune, we're going to play in a little bit. I'm going to teach you B flat. Be a little easier. Okay. So it's A, and then you're going to add the top thumb key in your right hand. So it's right above the big round one. Okay. All right. I can see what your issue is. You're, you're slipping off the tone holes just a little bit. Oh. Try, try it one more time. Need to make more need to make more hilarious sounds. That's uh, great. Very okay. good. So um, why is it going so flat at the end though? It's because I can see your jaw moving when you're trying to stop the note. Just stop it with your air. Okay. Yeah, it, it, it sucked a little bit better. Okay. Um it wasn't really that much better. <laughs> okay. First lessons. You do what you can. Okay, so let's just try those three notes. So we'll do C down to A, back up to B flat. So Good, but um, just got to make sure that you end up with these weird octave displacement things yeah. when tone holes aren't being properly covered. So the one I noticed off the bat was that first one wasn't covered okay. enough. Wait. Nailed it. There you go. Okay. And then just just repeat after me. figure out instead of pressing one and two down with the right hand it's just one and you'll get b natural okay so this raises the pitch then uh it uh yeah okay from a it would yes okay, I get um it. okay so the next note i'm going to teach you add go ahead and add the ring finger in your right hand on the 
not the little key, the but the one? bigger key below it. Okay. Yeah, that's going to be G, so below that. So as we're starting to get lower, start thinking of a much rounder embouchure you're a saxophone player. Imagine you're sure. playing Barry Sax, for example. So, so it's going to take I a little more roundness. Press any of the billion thumb keys? Not yet. Okay. Just the whisper key should stay down. Oh, <laughs> oh my reed fell off. <laughs> and the reed just fell off. <laughs> All right. There you go. I made these. I make my reads by hand. So, um, you spend a lot of time making reads. It's it's the life of a double read player. We're just making them, we're making reads. Good. So yeah, you got to start thinking of just a regular ah sound. Think more of an o. Oh, oh. Okay. That's the idea. Good. Okay. All right. Um, and finally, I'm gonna teach you one more note. It's the F right below it. It's gonna be the inside pinky key right here in your right hand. That the one e, right there. My E flat key. Your, yeah, your E flat key for saxophone. <laughs> Good. Just check the tone holes here. We'll just make sure they're all covered. Um, a lot of early practice, I, talk, I definitely recommend students play in front of a mirror. Just okay. so they can see what they're doing. Okay. Yeah. So you're, you're definitely uh, just having some of the first initial issues that a lot of people <laughs> will have is being able to relax enough. But soon, I mean... Compared to maybe when you started saxophone, how easy does it feel like it's for you to just get notes off the ground like this? Well, I have I have a more I have a better understanding of pitch than my fifth grade self did, oh, so sure. it's it's a little easier to navigate. But it is this I, I can't imagine how overwhelming this would be for like a fifth grader mm -hmm. or a younger kid. It just so, yeah, to maybe understand the fingerings and how precise the tone holes need to be covered. I'm yeah. sure beginning clarinetists could sympathize, but yeah. um, but overall, just general ease of sound. I think it seems much easier. For anyone, you know, ten you line up ten students, I think they can produce sounds on bassoon much faster than they could mm -hmm. on a saxophone. Yeah, it is pretty easy to, to get something on it at mm -hmm. least. Because I mean, all you really need to do is create enough air to go through the vocal, and then the instrument itself just resonates that okay. sound. Sure. So it doesn't require that much air, just the good concentration and a nice steady airflow is okay. all it really takes. So um, let's go and let's play. We'll start on C and we'll descend down the remainder of this F major scale. So something like this. You can take it much slower than that, so try it. And, and then remember Good. Good, yeah. Okay. So you gotta make sure you're not hitting a key right above it. That sure. creates a different note. One of the other billion keys. One of the other billion keys, okay. correct. So very good. Uh, now just 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 to kind of top it off. Let's do just an F major scale up to C, and we'll just go back down. Let's do it together. Oh, I have to that? do it backwards. Though. So now we can check your pitch. Okay. Okay. So we start on low F. We'll take it slow. Maybe I'll give everything. Okay. <laughs> Ready? That sounds so bad. Okay, hold on. Let me check. See now, yeah. Okay. Now we gotta check your. Now we're checking the pitch. Start picking up fingers and just, pressing down random keys. You start learning notes. As far as the woodwind oh. instrument, it makes sense that if you just keep going up, the, the yeah, the you know, you, you lift a finger. And we had some, finger. Oh, we had some harmony too. That was the way it goes. So nice. okay. okay, then I, heck, if you can play a, you can play a whole F major scale. Let's well, play I can't. A I, it can well, no, you've set the bar for yourself. So now we have to do it. So, so we're gonna do an F major scale. Okay. Really quick, and then we're gonna get to this nice tune I put together. Okay. So ready? Ready? 
So it's, it's like it's, it's the, the same struggle I, I have playing clarinet, I yeah. think. Okay. The other thing I want you to do is relax. Keep thinking of that round. Oh, okay. so oh I wish I could sing a low F, but I can't. So. Our producer is why. <laughs> it's yeah. really hard. Yeah, it's, this is all your fault, Chris. <laughs> oh, see, your finger already slipped. can do an F major scale three octaves. So wow. all the way up to a high F, which is the top line of treble Let's save that for our next lesson. Ah, yeah, sure, that's fine. So that's what I would assign this homework. Okay. Okay, so um, so just for everyone's entertainment, we I produced a little duet of Ode to Joy, you know, from Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, and Daniel here is going to lead us okay. at the melody, and I'm going to provide accompaniment. Okay, so this starts on A. So, yep, your first note is an A. So it only involves those five notes we talked about. Wait. Is that it? That's the first note. Yeah. Well, don't spoil it. Don't okay. spoil it. Right. You, oh, yeah, it's the piece you wrote. Yeah, this is the thing yeah. I put together in five Sorry, minutes. I, I just wrote the whole thing. I just let everyone over. Oh, okay. okay. People wait a whole symphony to hear this. Oh, yeah. Maybe. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, want to go at that tempo or a little slower? Uh, yeah, until I really screwed up. Absolutely. Okay. So we go until we crash. So okay. So I just want to clarify. B is A with the thumb key. Yep, on, right? that's your okay. B flat, and that's if that's our key signature. Okay. So, okay, so one, two, ready. Uh, okay. Well, didn't make it that far. These okay. tone holes are killing me. Yeah, that's it's a definite challenge. My, I have arthritis already. I can feel like just from holding this. Um, okay. You know, and they're definitely good. We could definitely talk a little more about posture and things like that and hand position, but just for just for hilarity, it's fun watching yeah. you suffer. Okay, okay, let me let me just get the first note. Sure. It is. Okay. Nailed it. Okay. Two. Ready. So, <laughs> Chris, our audio, Chris the engineer, he's dying over here. Okay, so let, me maybe I should, oh, let, me, let me just try this real quick. Okay. Is it all? In the, is it just the left hand? It's typically yeah, that's your issue because it's very we easy just super for this. Glue them on there and just yeah. Like, okay. All right. So get this in place and just never move. 
couple notes. He only missed a couple notes, which yeah. I mean, for bassoon players, that's that's pretty darn good. I'm also I'm not as winded as I expected to be. No, I, I like yeah. I, I mentioned before, it doesn't take much air to, um, you know, to create a nice resonant sound, and you know, bassoon players are actually very notorious for being able to play long periods of time without a breath. Well, thank so. you so much for my my free. How much do I owe you? Oh, uh, it's gonna be 180 an hour. Oh. 200 if by Bill, my, produ- my producer will pay for it. Oh, but that, that, that is not my lesson <laughs> pricing. I just hate Daniel that much. So we just, uh. Well, that's all for today. Uh, Chris, I wanted to thank you for uh, the free private lesson and your time. Thank you for having me, Daniel. Make sure we all mark our calendars for his recital on March 12th, 2 p.m., the Urbana Free Library. Admission, of course, is free, and it is a family-friendly program. Check out our website, urbanapops.org, where you can always find the most recent episode of the UPO Popscast as well as information about this orchestra and upcoming performances and events. You can also like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash urbanapops, where there are pictures and behind-the-scenes footage of this episode, including um, my lesson with Chris. We'd like to give a special thanks to the Community Center for the Arts for providing a studio space. You can read more about C4A at c-4a.org. The UPO Pops cast is produced and engineered by Chris Peterson, And I am Daniel Sutherland. And from all of us here at the Urbana Pops Orchestra, thank you for listening. Make sure to hit that subscribe button, and we will see you next time.